A reading from Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, we have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight and grant us the grace to repent of both hypocrisy and self-righteousness in light of your word and grant us the grace to know your forgiveness. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is good to be back with you. Uh, A couple of things before I get started with the message. Uh, First of all, after you'll note in uh, the program that after the sermon, there will be a a couple of songs that we'll sing together. During that time, if you would like to pray with someone, uh, there are some prayer ministers uh, who will be stationed at the back of the sanctuary on either side, and you can quietly go there. They're trained. Uh, They will keep whatever you share with them in confidence, but they would love to pray with you. And so I invite you uh, to that during the songs after my message. The other thing I'll mention is I, it's my joy. I not only get to be here today, but I get to be here next week as well. So I'm excited about that. Um, 
I say that, I mention that because this afternoon, what, my kids are scattered everywhere. My wife and I have five kids. Our oldest is uh, home from her first year of college. We've got one at Interlochen up in Northern Michigan doing visual arts camp. We've got two with my wife in Michigan visiting my parents right now. And then we have one who's about to start uh, a summer conservatory acting program at AMDA on the Upper West Side. And I need to help her get there by one o'clock. So I'm gonna slide out maybe right when the service ends. Please don't think I don't wanna talk about today's sermon. I recognize actually that today's sermon, you might really wanna talk about certain aspects of it. It's a real good way of wetting your appetite or setting your expectations way too high. But I will be back next week, and uh, I promise I'll stick around longer next week. So thank you for um, letting me get to my daughter and getting her to where she needs to be this afternoon. I love baseball cards. I, start, I think I started collecting baseball cards shortly after the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. My Detroit Tigers won the World Series in 1984. Uh, I remember starting to collect them in 1985 when you'd see those little packs. If you're my age or older, when you'd see packs of baseball cards on sale at Kmart, right? As you're going out begging my mom, could you spend whatever it was, 50 cents to buy me a pack of cards? Well, then I really got into it like 86, 87. I was like buying as many baseball cards as I could. And of course, one of the features of a baseball card is on the back of it, it had a number. It told you with a card number so that you knew how many cards were in the whole set and how many more you needed to have the whole set of the 1986 Topps baseball cards. I mean, I was so into this. I still have thousands of baseball cards somewhere in my parents' house unless they got rid of them, which I hope they didn't. Dad, if you're watching, please don't get rid of them. Um, I love, I think part of what I loved about baseball cards is that like getting the full set. Like I wanted all of it and I wanted to have it in one box. Okay, why do I bring this up? Well, the last time I was here uh, was back in Lent and I did a two part series on the spiritual discipline of confession. I don't anticipate that any of you remember that, much less either sermon. However, I love a set. And there's actually a third part to that series that I thought, it's all right. I have two weeks. It's during Lent. It fits the theme of the season. I'll just preach too. And then when Jim said, hey, could you cover for me while I'm at Regent? I was like, can I, can I complete the set? Like, I want to do the third sermon. Um, so that's where we're going today. And, and we're going to look at the Old Testament reading uh, that we had. Now, to refresh your memories without re-preaching a sermon, uh, we looked at two aspects of the spiritual discipline of confession. And we, we confessed our sins earlier uh, in the service. What, what is this that we're doing? What is it that we're called to do? One aspect of it that we looked at from 1 John 1 is uh, we are coming clean before God. We're just owning up to the fact that we're not who we, who our social media says we are. That there's a lot about our lives we curate for others even people we live with, even spouses, we curate our lives, and yet God knows us through and through. And the spiritual discipline of confession starts with acknowledging before God, yeah, you know what I'm really like, and I'm owning up to it. I'm coming clean. The second aspect we looked at, we, we looked at the story of Zacchaeus, who made this amazing confession of his own sin to another human being. If I've done anything wrong, Jesus, I'll restore it times four, right? And we looked at this 
command from James of confessing our faults to one another, that part of the spiritual discipline of confession is not just coming clean before God, but it is also uh, opening up with one another, that there is healing when we have a trusted friend or a pastor or, or a counselor who also knows what's going on in our lives. It doesn't mean we air all of our dirty laundry with every person we see. It's not what that means. But what it does mean is that in communities like this, we're called to be in the kinds of relationships where we can open up with one another, where we have some people or at least someone who knows fully what's going on and who can walk with us towards a path of healing. The third piece, the third part of the set, today's baseball card, as I said, is Daniel 9. And it's one that we don't think much about in an American context because we are, we tend to be hyper individualistic. But did you notice what verse four says? Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord and made confession. Grammar nerd moment, first person singular. I, right? What was the content of his confession? Verse five, we have sinned. First person, plural. I prayed and I confessed, we have sinned. This prayer compels us to ask, what did Daniel do wrong? The the sins he's confessing relate to the Babylonian captivity, which had happened when he was a boy. If you know the book of Daniel, I think Jim recently preached through it. It starts with Daniel as a boy during Babylonian captivity, being hauled off to Babylon. What did he do wrong? How was he personally culpable for the destruction of Jerusalem? How can I confess the sin of we? Or, you could put it this way, why should Daniel shoulder the blame? And that's the title for today's sermon, Shouldering the Blame. That's a question we have to wrestle with. Excuse me. Why should a seemingly righteous person confess the sins of other people when they haven't done anything wrong? Friends, the mere presence of verse 4 in the Bible presents a direct challenge to the, to the American gospel of individualism. You do the crime, you do the time. We like to believe each person stands or falls on their own two feet. So the thought that I should shoulder the blame for someone else's wrongdoing or for their stupidity or for their failure uh, to plan is anathema to me, right? Like what, what's one of those uh, quotes that's sometimes used in the business world? Uh, uh, a failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part, right? Like just because you don't know what you're doing doesn't mean that I've got to drop everything and and fix your problem. And for us in the church, we can tend sometimes to cherry pick verses from the Proverbs or from the epistles and then justify our indifference to the brokenness of other people. Well, they should just know better. It's tragic because it's true. And over against us and over against huge swaths of the church in America stands Daniel. Fasting, praying, confessing as his own the sins of his people. And not only him, but Jeremiah before him. 
at least twice in his book, chapters 3 and 14. And the psalmist before Jeremiah in Psalm 106, and long before that, Moses, thank you very much, in Exodus 32, actually willing to substitute himself for the sin of his people. That's why when you look back at 1 John 1, and you have all those if statements, they're all plural. If we claim to have no sin, but if we confess our sins, right? If we walk in the light, it's all plural, but we run right over it because we think I, I, I. The Apostle John stands in a long line of prophets who shouldered the blame of other people and their sin. And in 1 John 1, he's saying we should do the same thing too, if we confess our sins. Which, of course, brings me back to this question of why. Why should we as individuals shoulder the blame of a collective whole, either of our own local church or the church in this region or the church in our country? On what basis should I confess the sin of the we? And friends, the answer to that question lies in the nature of sin. It is because sin is what it is that we ought to confess not only our private individual sins, the things you were doing this past week that you knew you shouldn't have done, but also the sins of groups, the sins of our tribe, the sins of our people. The clearest place to meditate on the nature of sin in this passage comes towards the end in verse 16. Daniel prays, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. In that one sentence, he is connecting the sins of generations. And by that, he is telling us something about the nature of sin. For starters, sin is corrosive. It's not a thing in itself. There's not this eternal conflict between good and evil, and it's kind of going back and forth and back and forth. No, the scriptures are clear. When God created everything, everything was created good, 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 very good. It's all good. Even the enemy of our souls himself was originally created good. Evil is not an eternal being fighting an eternal battle against God. Evil is a poison that makes what is good sinful. Evil is a contagion that makes healthy people sick. Sin is like rust. It does not ex exist unless there's metal, unless there is good. Thus, it is corrosive. And because it is corrosive, it is also cancerous. That is, it has a spreading influence. Think about it. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So then what are the two great sins? Right? Failing to love the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. Every other sin in the Bible, you can categorize in one of those two places. That's why Jesus says, everything hangs on these two commands. Now, when we fail to love God 
when we fail to love neighbor as we ought, our evil spreads to others and triggers their evil. Now, make no mistake, we don't need other people to trigger us in order for our sin to just come spilling out. But the failure of others to love us as they should certainly makes it easier for me to justify my failure to love them, right? Does it not? Did you experience that this week at work? Probably. There is this spreading effect of our failure to love God and others. That's why I say it is cancerous. The corrosion spreads. Now, let's add another layer to it. Let's add a third dimension to it, or if you will, a fourth. Because of the nature of time, this spread of evil is not confined to a single moment in history. It spreads over time and is therefore generational. It's not just, to use big fancy words, it's not just a synchronic spread. Like that action of injustice triggered that failure to love, and that's where it ends. It is diachronic. One act leads to another, which leads to another and spreads to another, and it moves through time. It's generational. The one year affects the next year. The sin of one generation spreads to the next generation, which is why Daniel can pray, we have sinned and our fathers have sinned. You see it? There's this corrosion that was cancerous that then became generational. Their sin has flowed down to us. Their failure to love you, God, and their failure to love neighbor as they ought has, have negatively, has negatively affected our lives. And now we are actually, and this is a humbling thought, we are actually contributing to the corrosion in the generations yet to come. And I'll, I'll joke with other parents about this. We'll joke together, right? That this is something our kids will have to go to therapy for. And sadly, that's probably true because it has this kind of generational impact, which of course means that sin has systemic implications. Systems and structures are built by sinful people, as good as they are. I work for one. It's a good one. Still, it was built by sinful people. So we shouldn't be surprised when the sin of sinful people becomes ensconced in policy that may benefit some to the exclusion of others. Now, certainly Christian organizations ought not be that way. And if it gets pointed out, there ought to be course correction. And yet still we're sinful people. And this is not just a political thing. Even using the word is not like a right wing or a left wing thing. Systems are broken because the people who built them are broken and the people who operate them are broken. And friends, it's not just them. In our increasingly polarized society, we are quick to point the finger at the other. They're the problem. It's their injustice, their anarchy, their lawlessness, their systemic oppression. We're not wrong to identify injustice or lawlessness or oppression where it arises, but I say, friends, it's not just them. 
our own sin, my own sin, contributes to the mess we're in. Our own brokenness, my own brokenness, will have negative consequences for the next generation. I must own my sin as corrosive and cancerous and generational and systemic, even if it's not as public as someone else's sin, even if it's not as egregious as someone else's sin, even if it's not as heinous as someone else's sin. What Daniel is modeling for us in this incredible prayer of confession is that we are in this together, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not. None of us is righteous. None of us can sit atop a perch and cast judgment down on the broken masses. We are not called to say, oh, Lord, the great and awesome God, they have sinned and done wrong. Have mercy on them. What Daniel models is a prayer, oh, great and awesome God, we have sinned. We're in this together. We can deny it if we want. We can go ahead and claim to have fellowship with God while deceiving ourselves, but even that sin will have generational consequences. And frankly, we're seeing the generational consequences of that denial every single day. This is why I must confess the sin of the we. But friends, we need something more than a collective prayer of confession. We need someone to step up and put a stop to it all. And friends, someone has, and his name is Jesus. While we are busy distancing ourselves from one another and trying to get on our high horses and lord it over others, Jesus stepped down from his high throne and became one of us in his incarnation. He took our human nature on himself to walk with us, not above us. And then at his baptism, he identified with us. He literally underwent a baptism for repentance. Why? What did he have to repent of? Nothing. Yet he so identified with us that in his baptism, Jesus effectively was saying, Lord, we have sinned. And in the crucifixion, he bore the weight of our sin, literally shouldering the weight of the cross, bearing our blame that we might go free. And then, friends, on the third day, he rose from the dead to reverse the generational tide and reclaim what is rightfully his by his spirit. According to St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he is constructing a new humanity, literally uniting into one person, himself, the broken shards of our humanity bringing us to God with his spirit and with one another. So friends, why is there this emphasis on the we when you come to 1 John 1 or when you read this prayer of Daniel? It's because the spirit has made us a we. The spirit has done this. Jesus died and rose again to make us a we. And even Jesus does not stand above us and refer to us as they. He identifies himself as one of us. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to look at us and call us sisters 
and brothers. That's how, that's how far his identification with us goes, that even after our renewal, even after our regeneration, even after our forgiveness, when we still do shameful stuff, Jesus never turns his face away. He's not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. We might be ashamed to call some Christians our brothers and sisters, but Jesus never is. That's remarkable. Others might be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, but Jesus never is, and that's remarkable. He is still part of the we, and friends, as long as he is, we have hope. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means we add to what we've learned, right? We do confess our sin to God, 1 John 1, and we learn to confess our sin to one another. But the third thing we learn to complete the set is that we learn to confess sin for one another, not just to one another, but for one another. The spiritual discipline of confession entails coming clean and opening up and shouldering blame. These are the three aspects of this formative practice of confession. So you say, well, how do I go about doing that? Well, I I suggest you just start in your own quiet time and follow the example of Daniel. When you confess sin, yes, confess your personal I, me, my sins, but don't stop there. And if you need help to know, Lord, what am I confessing? Open up your social media and scroll for a minute. And rather than sitting on a high horse condemning, learn to identify where have we sinned, this person posting and myself. I'm going to confess this, Lord, we have sinned. What have we done to your body? What have we done to your witness? Rather than cast accusatory words at others and say, oh, those people, let's learn to pray we have sinned. And if all of that just feels so foreign, like that's so far removed, well, then let me close with the thing that would be the easiest next step for you. Pray this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. See, friends, it's everywhere. (laughs) It's everywhere that it's we, us, our, not just I, me, my. Sometimes our individualistic lenses can keep us from seeing it. So let us learn to pray with Jesus for the whole body of his faithful people who are governed and sanctified by his Holy Spirit, that God might have mercy on us all. Amen. Let us pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you as we ought. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen.
Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.